for those who believe. Paul wants them to know the power of God. In chapter 2, we could look at chapter 2 as examples of God's power. Let me show you. Oh, let me show you. No, I won't show you. A slide. Is it, is it going to come up? It's going to come up in a minute. Do we need some technical assistance? The te- te- technology. Thought you'll love it. Not. If I, if, if I knew how it would The walls are coming down again. Oh, well done. Here we go. That's the slide I wanted to show you. We're on line. God's power displayed. In chapter 2, there were two examples. Chapter 2 splits into two sections. Verse 1 to 10 is all about God's power being displayed individually. Paul says, you were dead, but now God has made you alive. Individually. From verse 11, he is speaking much more about God's power being displayed relationally. So God's power is displayed in two ways. In making dead people alive again, and in making people who are previously fighting, sulking, aggressive and hostile to bring them together in peace, unity, harmony. So these are big ideas, aren't they? God's power demonstrated in two ways. There's a number of very striking similarities between those two sections. The, The most obvious one is that in both those sections, Paul says, this is what you were, and then right in the middle he says, but now, this is what you now are. Did you notice that? Ian was preaching last week. You were dead, but now God has made you alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. That's what you were. Something has changed. God's power has been displayed in your individual lives. The, second, the next section in chapter 2 is exactly the same. He says, therefore remember who you were. You Gentile, this is what you were, but now... You've been brought together. He actually says that in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near. So in both sections, you've got that idea. That's what you were. This is what you now are. I love the way Paul includes himself. Both these sections have got a bit of a you, we, you thing going on. You were and we, and then he applies it and says you. There's a solidarity. He's not talking to them from a distance. He's in the trenches with them. Paul actually, as we'll see, is a Jewish man. He's part of this hostility. The the, the idea of solidarity. I I want to ask you the question here. Do, Do you want to know what God's ultimate will is? We talk a lot about this, don't we? I I, want to know what God's will is for my life. Well, here's a big picture answer. Here's God's ultimate will. His power is available to you. He wants to make you live and he wants to enable you to be in relationship, to belong, to be plugged in, to participate. That's the big picture. God has displayed his power to save us and to bring us into relationship. 
with himself and with one another. I was re- during the week this week. I was preparing. I was reading um, American uh, writer and minister Tim Keller, and thinking about these two sections, he makes the interesting point that our Western ears are very individualistic. You, you know that, don't you? We think in terms of me, myself, and I, not we. Our we we think individualistically, not corporately. Um, Tim Keller says, when you read the first part, individual bit, everyone pricks up their ears and says, well, that sounds good. It's for me. God made me alive with Christ. That sounds very exciting. And we prick up our ears. That sounds like God is doing something for me. As soon as we get to verse 11 and onwards, yeah, we go, oh no, the church. Do I have to? Do I have to? That's going to involve commitment and effort. It means I'm going to have to let people get to know me and I'm going to have to work hard to get to know them. My life would be okay if it wasn't for other people being strange. Do I have... That, that's the way our culture thinks, isn't it? We prick up our ears when it's all about me, but as soon as it's all about we... We're less inclined. People say in our culture, don't they, that they are spiritual but not religious. They, they want to think about spiritual things, but it's very private. It's private. My, my faith is very private. Very precious to me. don't want to talk to you about it. It's, we're, we're very individualistic in the way we think. Maybe for some people, churches hate them. The point here is that according to Paul and the flow of his logic here, is that you can't really be a lone ranger Christian. If God's power is at work in your life, it is at work in two ways, to make you alive and to enable you to relate. The church is really important because it's a place where relationships are healed and put back together. Let's uh, have a look at what Paul says in these uh, few verses then. To demonstrate God's power in bringing enemies together, Paul uses the example of Jews and Gentiles. Because it's pertinent to him. He's a Jew. He's writing here predominantly to Gentile people. This is not the only example of enmity and hostility and hatred in the world. But in the first century, it was a very big one. The the challenge here is I don't want to get bogged down with Jews and Gentiles. What what I'd like to do is understand what was the root of their hostility to one another so that we can understand the principles that are involved and see what Christ has done to overcome that. Um, I'm not actually sure though that any of the apparent racism, nationalism, or enmity in our modern era compares with the hostility that there was here in the first century. That's why I've called it the greatest enmity. I'm not sure there has ever been a more difficult, intractable, unsolvable distance between two different groups of people as there was between Jews and Gentiles. So Paul's point here is, if God could overcome that, he can overcome anything. That's the point. And hopefully 
we'll see that as I go through. One, the reason I say that, one writer says this, a study of the history of the ancient world tells us that none of today's social distinctions, none of our racial barriers, narrow nationalisms or iron curtains are more exclusive or unrelenting than the separation between Jews and Gentiles in biblical times. Get this, the Jews believed that the Gentiles were created by God to fuel the fires of hell. It was not lawful to aid a Gentile woman who was giving birth, for that would bring another heathen into the world. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine thinking that another group of people were just basically created by God to fuel the fires of hell? How does that affect you at work with your work colleagues? Well, you wouldn't work with them, would you? But working with them, <laughs> firewood, burn them. It's intractable, deep. Paul is writing here, as a Jew though, to Gentiles who have felt that they're on the receiving end of that kind of treatment. Remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth, think about what that meant for you. He's, he's writing to them sympathetically. You Gentiles were called the uncircumcised. He put it in the NIV here, it's put in inverted commas. Literally, the, the Jews were calling Gentiles foreskin. That, that, is, that is what the word in quotation marks really means. Imagine that. Jews, you Gentile, foreskins, a lot of them. Fires of hell. That, that's what Paul says here. The language is very shocking. Remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called foreskins by those who call themselves the circumcision. That done in the body by the hand of men, not done in the heart by the hand of God, in other words. Paul's Jewish pedigree was as good as anyone's. And he is writing here as a person who once used to think very differently to the way he thinks now. He was a religious and ethnic racist himself. In a letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians, Paul says to them, if someone thinks they have reason to put confidence in their flesh, in themselves, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. We're not a text. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What he's concerned about here is to reach out to Gentiles who have been treated like ethnic and religious outcasts. And in a way, Paul is confessing his part in that <coughs> dynamic. And he's writing to encourage them. It, this is nuanced though, isn't it? Because on the other hand, Paul knows that God had spoken to the Jews. God had, in fact, given 
the Jewish nation, his laws, the Old Testament that we have on our hand, what nation was it all given to? Israel. In a way, it is true that the Gentiles did not have access to all of this history. Paul is very nuanced here. He distances himself from the hatred and the accusation. But he says five very specific things here from verse 12. Remember, you Gentiles, that at that time you were separate from Christ. Why is that? Well, Jesus was a Jew. He's the Jewish Messiah. How can you get access to Jesus if you're not a Jew? He says you were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Well, that's obvious. You weren't born a Jew. How can you be a Jew? You could convert to Judaism, but you wouldn't really be one. Everyone would know you weren't really. He says you were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. All those promises in the Old Testament to all those great heroes in the Bible, what God said to Abraham, Moses, Jacob, Isaac, King David, all the prophets in the Old Testament, everything that God said to these guys in the Old Testament, none of it's for you. You're, you weren't born a Jew, so you're foreigners to all those promises. They're not yours, you're on the outside. And he says, you Gentiles were without hope, and without God in the world. Imagine that. You're going about your daily life, doing the best you can, but in the end, you have no hope and no knowledge of God. Whatever you do, there's no point to it. It's hopeless. However hard you try, you can't smash the door down and get in, because you're outside in the cold. Once um, I went scuba diving on holiday in Mexico with my two eldest boys, Rob and Ben. And we were diving, not in the sea, but in a cave that was inland. It was probably 10 miles from the coast. Very unusual because there was salt water and fresh water and I can't remember which way around but one floats on top of the other and there's a place in the middle that's got a special name I think, is it called a halo climb? and we were swimming in this cave and the guide, with our torches and the guide wanted to show us this effect when you, when you sit above it you can see like a mill pond the, the, the other layer beneath, beneath. As, as we were swimming along we in this cave though with the guard we passed this sign this is a picture of the very sign I didn't take a picture while I was there but I found this on the internet this is in the cave and this is the sign we swam past stop, prevent your death go no further fact, more than 200 divers including open water scuba instructors have died in caves just like this one Fact, you needed training to dive. You need cave training, cave equipment to cave dive. So this, this dive guy's taking us to this place and we swim past this side. You can't talk underwater. So we're looking at each other, giving each other the eyes, you know. <laughs> Should we go back? The guy's off, he's spinning away. 
There's nothing in this cave worth dying for. Do not go beyond this point. Why do I show you that? We, we don't have the temple in Jerusalem anymore. It was destroyed. The, the, the one that Jesus knew, Herod's temple. But in 1871, one of the temple pillars from that temple was discovered. And on that pillar was an inscription very like this one. So I altered this one. This is, this is what it said on the pillar. It wasn't underwater. Stop. No man of another race is to enter within the fence and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught will only have himself to thank for the death which follows. I changed the bottom. There's nothing in this temple worth dying for. It just that sign reminded me. So in the Jewish temple, if you were a Jew, you could go into the inner courts, but signs like this were posted on the pillars. Go no further. If you go any further than this, don't blame us if you get stabbed in the back. That's basically what it says, isn't it? You have no right to come in. You Gentile dogs. That, it's, it's horrible. The segregation. The separation. The dividing wall. Don't blame us if you get knife. You've been warned. One writer says, the meaning of estrangement had been seared like a burning brand upon their souls. So here's the thing. Two groups. A deep divide. Hostile. Nasty. A great barrier between them. There hasn't been a discriminatory, prejudiced separation as bad as this one in the whole of human history. But it's no different in our modern world, really, is it? We spend so much time with mediators, counsellors, diplomacy, negotiations, whether it's nations as at the moment we said with fragile peace talks in Ukraine, whether it's marriages that are sulking, silent, brooding, unhappy. When I was reading Tim Keller, I came across a great quote. He, he, he suggests that we collectively spend billions of dollars just to stop ourselves strangling one another. I thought, I'll treat. What would the world's economies be like if there was no conflict? That's a great question politically, isn't it? All of us, I think, know someone who, is, who isn't speaking to someone else. It's not my, I'm not speaking to them. Do what they've said. <laughs> Perhaps that's even you this afternoon. Maybe you are part of a broken relationship. Paul here is inside all of the struggle and look at what he says in verse 14. For he himself, that is the Lord Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, 
by abolishing in his flesh, abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace. This is incredible incredibly relevant I want to be very simple and ask two questions why then do we build walls and how is it that Christ smashes them that was a long introduction but two very simple questions why do we build walls and how on earth does Christ according to Paul here smash them is that okay simples why do we build walls? Let me just uh, talk about this for a little while. Let, let me give you the, uh, an answer. I think it's a good answer. And then we'll flesh it out. Here, here's the definition. We build walls when we twist the good things that God gives to us into a way of making ourselves look good. We build walls between one another when we take the good things that God gives to us and use them to make ourselves look good. That is how we build walls. In verse 14, Paul speaks of a great barrier. He describes it as a wall of hostility. What do you think this dividing wall of hostility is? This is not a rhetorical question. So you can look at the passage here. What is the wall? Verse 14 speaks about the dividing wall of hostility. And then verse 15 goes on to say some parallel things. What is the wall? It's a good excuse to get a little drink. What is the dividing wall of hostility? I, I've had all week to look at this, so it's not fair really to ask you to answer in ten seconds. Let's read the verses again. Verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of his hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. In the first verse it says that he's destroyed the barrier. In the next verse it says that he's abolished in his flesh the law. It seems to be, when you look at those two verses together, that the thing that is causing the division, the hostility, is the law that needed abolishing. The thing that has been built between them that separates them is the law do you get that he clarifies too by saying it's not just the law but it's the law with all its bells and whistles did you get that he doesn't have to say that he abolished in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations the whole lot all of the ceremonial laws of the old testament Christ has come 
And he has abolished in his flesh all of those regulations. The word abolish is a strong one there. I I think a better word might be the word nullify. What, What Christ has come to do is to get rid of the very thing that they've built up as a separating mechanism. That's really the thrust of Paul's argument here. So get this. Even the ceremonial laws that were given to the Jews in the Old Testament were designed to communicate something of the nature of God and how human beings can relate to him and relate to one another. These laws were given to teach the Israelite nation about purity, integrity, justice. In short, the law was fulfilled when people loved one another. The law even said in Leviticus, love your neighbour as you love yourself. That was in their own law. They were told repeatedly in their laws to love the stranger, the alien, the outsider, the outcast. And then we have signs going up in the temple like the one we saw. Stop, go no further. What we all thought if you get stabbed in the back? They had the law, but they used it to build a great big fence. Instead of doing what the law told them to do, it became a wall of hostility. So what actually is going on here is that the good laws that God gave to them became a source of division. Their very religious rituals became... A thing that gave them a sense of superiority. Look at what God's given to us. He didn't give it to you. Healthy. God's given us his word. But he hasn't given it to you. What a shame. The very thing that God had given to them. The good things that God had given to them. They used it to beat other people up with. The wall goes up. Their rituals gave them a sense of distance. Instead of these laws promoting love as they should have done, they actually enhance separation and division. So I say again, walls will always go up between us when we twist God's good gifts into a way of making ourselves feel superior to other people. Let's think about it. As soon as we have a strength or a gift, doesn't it immediately become the source of our significance? I can, I can do that. They can't do that. Being a parent proves this. I don't want to badmouth my children. Some of you are parents, so you know I'm not badmouthing my children, but we've had five. Some good experience of having children. If I give something to one of my children, I can tell you that one of two things happens. If I don't give it to all five, if I, if I single out one of my children and give something to them, one of two things happens. Either they will subtly rub their siblings' noses in it and say, oh, look what my dad gave me. Didn't give that to you, did he? <laughs> Superiority, that's called. Twisting the good gift that their father gave to them as a way of going, I'm better than you. It's like an instinct that rises up. The other thing that can happen is that the others straight away instinctively have the flip side of, what about me? What about me? 
So, you, a good gift's given, and you either get superiority or paranoia. And I, we, we just gave up giving good things to our kids. <laughs> it's too painful. Human nature, just treat them bad all the time because they will just fight. Don't give them anything. Isn't it true in school? We have, we have sets or streams in school. Do you remember that from your school days? The kids who are doing well get put into the top stream, don't we? I'm in the top stream. What happens? They sense, don't they, immediately, I'm superior to everyone else, I'm a gifted, gifted and talented child. And they walk around the schools, though they own the school. What about the kids who are not in the top stream? Who do those clever clubs think they are? Straight away, superiority, paranoia, inferiority. All the time in life, it seems like human instinct. It's interesting to me, isn't it, that it's only when it's not fair to us that we feel we're losing out. It's never unfair if we're gaining. I talked about my kids earlier. Another thing, it doesn't take you long to learn as a parent is that whatever happens in our house, it's never anyone's fault. I wish I had the wisdom of Solomon sometimes, because it is never anyone's fault. You hear all hell breaking out, and you, what happened? It wasn't my fault. Was it your fault? No, it wasn't my fault. It, whose fault was it then? Was it wasn't anyone's fault. It, th- this happens all the time. The default position of all of my children has been, I would not have done that if they hadn't done what they did. It wasn't my fault. They started it. And the subtext is, I'm never wrong. I'm not a bad person. I was provoked. I would never do these bad things if that bad person hadn't done their thing to me. I obviously always have the highest standards of integrity, kindness, lack of spitefulness, and I would not have done that if they hadn't done what they did. Not my fault. Go talk to them. They need a good... Well, you know what's coming. The reason this has gone pear-shaped is because they didn't live up to their own standards. I'll tell you, that's what happened here. I've never never yet met a racist who thinks they're racist. Racists always justify their racism based on something that they are and the other group isn't. And they don't call it racism. That is what it is, but they don't call it that. I mean, look at them. They dot, dot, dot. I'm entitled to think like this because look at what they've done. We crave significance. We hate being undermined. But it is pride that makes us fight. It is pride that makes us racist. It is pride that makes us sulk. Why do we build walls? Because of of the pride that lurks in our own hearts. A church is immune from this? No. But churches should be a place where these things are recognised and by God's power. Do Do you get now why this needs God's power? God's power displayed in this world to make dead people alive and to make people who are falling out get on. The church should be a living miracle. 
a massive billboard to a watching world to say, look here, come here, this is where God's powers at work. How then does Christ destroy or smash the wars? If the root of the issue is our human pride, then it must be clear that Christ did not come to educate us primarily. He did not come to negotiate with us primarily. Christ came to confront our pride and to deal with it once and for all. Our text, verse 14 says, Paul begins um, his answer to the question we're asking, who, for he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. That, that is interesting in itself, isn't it? The fact that Paul sees peace not as a thing, but as a person. Isn't that significant? He's not leading them to some kind of peace over here. Peace is not the absence of hostility. Jesus is described in the Old Testament as the Prince of Peace. For Paul, peace is a person. The Lord Jesus. Why is he himself all peace? Oh. First of all, because he's not like we are. He's not proud like us. If the essence of pride is twisting God's good gifts into things that make us compete, Christ is the exact opposite, isn't he? The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 2 that all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him in bodily form. He's not just in the top class. He's in, his own, he's in a class all of his own. But does it lead him to rub other people's noses in it? Does Jesus strut around acting all superior and looking down his nose at other people? Read the Gospels. What he has and is he simply gives away. He was not, he, he caused a scandal. They called him the friend of sinners. If, if he was who he claims to be, he wouldn't be associating with those people. See what's happening? Walls being built. He was known as the friend of sinners. In a class all by himself, the son of God. Never did he grasp I want it, I want it, I must have it, I must have it now. Never either did he display any paranoia. Do you ever catch a glimpse of Jesus being hypersensitive? He was utterly misunderstood. In the end, he was ultimately rejected by man. And even in death, he could pray, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He is utterly lacking in any kind of pride. But here is another second point. He himself is our peace because the cross radically changes the rules. Why do I say that? This passage is really all about the cross. 
So let me say it, the answer to human pride in the end is the cross of Jesus. First of all, it eliminates the law as the basis of our acceptance with God. That's why I think the word abolish is not quite the right word because it implies that the law is bad. What, What Paul's trying to say is that none of us can use the law the rules, if you like, to claim superiority over someone else. The divisive power of the law comes from our tendency to use it to make ourselves feel better and condemn others. I can keep this, they can't. I'm on this side, so they're on that side. Christ has nullified all of that, he's changed the rules he has, a, he has nullified the law in his flesh and his purpose here is to create one new person out of two fighting peoples it, this is not a Gentile version of Jewishness or a Jewish version of Gentileness he's actually getting rid of all of that and creating something that transcends both categories in him So the law now can never be the basis of our acceptance with God. Can I say this as well? Think think about your own life during this week to come. Whatever it is, it might not be the law for you. It might be something else for you. Whatever it is in your life that you rely on to give you significance and make you feel better than other people, Jesus has come to show that those distinctions are, are no more. You you cannot find acceptance with God on the basis of something that you do. Because as soon as you do that, you're condemning someone else. And that's the essence of breaking every law that God ever gave. Because it is the most unloving attitude we could have. Secondly, the cross radically changes rules because it shows us how bad things really are. This is hard. Christ did not come to help us to get along. Give us a, you know, when we were kids, if we were climbing over someone's garden fence, we'd have to have a peg up, you know. Come here, I'll give you a peg up. Jesus did not come into the world to give us a peg up. He came to save us. Our sinful pride will sink us into hell we have nothing to plead before God and if God left us to ourselves we would be doomed forever because of that ugly sinful pride think about this if this is not true why did Christ come how can you explain the death of the son of God The Son of God dying on a cross. What on earth is that all about? If there was was another way for people to be saved, do you not think God would have found it? Christ died not as an example, but as a saviour. The cross then tells us 
that we can't keep on blaming everyone else. We ourselves are sinners who need the Son of God to be our Saviour. There's no point making comparisons. There's no point trying to work out a pecking order. (laughs) There's no point thinking, which side of the line am I on? In the end, all of us need Christ to save us. That is why he came. We can't look at the cross and say, yeah, that's for really bad people, but I'm over here because I don't really need that. Christ came to save us because we need saving. There's that wonderful passage in the book of Romans chapter 3 where Paul spends two or three chapters establishing the fact that both Jews and Gentiles are guilty before God. And he says in chapter 3, there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Some people sin a lot. Some people sin less. But in the end, there's no difference, for all have sinned. That right there is the fundamental issue. There's no di- we want there to be a difference. I want to be different. Paul says there is no difference. Do you remember that Pharisee? Jesus told a story about a Pharisee who went to the temple to pray. And he said, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Do you remember that guy? People must have been laughing as Jesus told that story. And the other guy goes and he hides in the corner. He beats his breast and he says, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Everyone can see. And we all go, I'm not like that Pharisee. But actually, in our hearts, human pride, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. We want there to be a difference. Paul says there's no difference. The cross is the great leveller of humanity. We cannot, in the end, justify ourselves by condemning others. That is the heart of racism. I'm better than them. The cross levels all of that because it tells us that all of us, without exception, need a saviour. The reason we're often so easily offended, though, it's often, isn't it, because we secretly in our hearts think, I deserve better than this. Why has this happened to I don't deserve this. The cross teaches us that in the end we deserve nothing. Everything that we do have is really, in the end, only a gift of God's grace. If God, sometimes our kids come to us and they say, it's not fair! And my wife has a lot of pithy phrases that she's used over the years with our kids. And she just looks them in the eye and says, do you want it to be fair? Do you want it to be fair? Mm. All right then. (laughs) Maybe not. We're like that spiritually, aren't we? I don't deserve this. The cross teaches us that Actually, in the end, we don't deserve anything. There is something about Christianity, therefore, that is very offensive, isn't it? The cross is the most insulting thing you'll ever ever hear about. Because it's only there in our vision 
because we're sinners. There's no other explanation for the cross. We can try to sanitise it. We can try to make it mean something that it doesn't mean. But it stands there looming, reminding us that we have nothing to boast about and we have no ultimate rights to claim. Here, just look with me again at these verses. Paul says here, in verse 17, Christ came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Isn't that beautiful? Christ came to make peace with those who were near, those who were far. He brings them together, all of them sinners, because he died to save them. It's the same gospel for all of us. The cross, friends, is for the victim and the perpetrator. It is for the superior and the paranoid. It is for all. There's no difference. The cross shows us how bad things really are. Thirdly, the cross shows us how much we are loved. The solution to human pride is for God to supplant that pride in our hearts with something better. And in the face of all that we've said, God has not abandoned us. In love, Christ left the glory of heaven. He put aside all of his majesty, all of his glory, and came to earth to die in the place of sinners like us. The Bible says in one place that God made him who knew no sin to be sin. What that means is that God attributes to Jesus all of our ugly pride. And at the cross he treats Jesus as if he were the one who was racist, hateful, spiteful. He treated Jesus as the one who was proud, bigoted, superior. He treated Jesus, he was the one who was building walls up. And Jesus takes it all on his shoulders and drinks the consequences of our ugly pride to the very bottom of the cup. Do you know that the cross in the end will reveal our true colours? The cross will either melt you or it will harden you. It will either humble you and soften you or it will make you mad and angry and offended. Paul says something very amazing here that Christ through the cross put to death their hostility. I I want to ask, what really died on the cross? Jesus died for sure. But what Paul's saying here is that the one who was slain was actually the one doing the slaying. Like St. George and the dragon. Jesus was the one being slain and as he's being slain he is putting a spear right through pride. Putting to death the hostility. The one who's slain. Slain. He killed it. I've told you this story before of a man who was just trying to share his faith with his friend and they went into the church and there was a big cross on the wall and and the friend said to his friend who wasn't a believer 
Look at that. And the man said to him, he looked at the cross on the wall, he said, I couldn't care less. And as he said it, the word stuck in his throat because he just realised in that moment what it meant. And he looked again with tears in his eyes and he said, I couldn't care more. The cross will either melt you or it will harden you. Let me just make one final point. The cross also shows us that God loves the people that we often don't. In the end, if if you are harbouring bitterness in your heart, remember this. The people you come across every day are not the enemy. Sinful pride is your real enemy, not other people. The people you meet, even the ones who are unlovely, who cramp your style, who make you feel cross and make you go, who do they think they are? All of these people who are different, these people are not the enemy. The cross shows us that God loves people. They are precious and eternally significant. Do not harbour hatred in your hearts for other people. See people as people, not as threats or pains. What have we said? God displays his incredible power. He shows us that when he makes dead people alive. And in the second part of this chapter, he shows us it when he enables people who would otherwise be strangling one another to embrace one another in love. That is God's mission, to bring all things together under Christ. What will our church be here? Will it be irrelevant? Will we build walls? Will we use the good gifts that God gives to us to make ourselves look good and exclude other people? Will we succumb to pride and give in to superiority or supersensitivity? Or will we allow the cross of Christ to shape us? May our church be a place where the walls are coming down and not going up. Amen. Amen. To that. Amen.